0: Hello and welcome to the first BAFTA crew livestream series. Um, before we get going I will say that any of the views expressed are not those of BAFTA. Um, now that's done, I would very much like to welcome our guest today, Stuart Craig. Welcome. Hello. Um, Stewart has had an absolutely astonishing career. He's worked on so many films from The Elephant Man and The Mission through to Dangerous Liaisons, Notting Hill, Memphis Bell. He's also had an incredible collaboration with Richard Attenborough across films such as Gandhi, uh, Chaplin, Shadowlands, and Cry Freedom. And I would say, probably after J.K. Rowling and producer David Heyman, he is most responsible for the whole look, the style and the world of Harry Potter. um, Having worked from the very first film to the very last and also been involved in the Harry Potter Warner Brothers tour as well in in sort of creating that world. Um, He's been nominated for 10 Oscars, he's won three. He's been nominated for 14 BAFTAs, he's won two. He's won four Art Guild Directors Award including a Lifetime Achievement Award. And let's start by go going back, right back to the beginning, um, why did you want to become a production designer?
1: I, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure that I did for a, formulate the idea very quickly at all. I, I was interested in theater, and I think I was interested in theater because at my school there was a tradition of Gilbert and Sullivan operas, and I was painting the scenery one day for Yeoman of the Guard painting the brick with the stone wall of the Tower of London and somebody behind me uh... audibly commented and, and praised it and I was something s- sort of switched really, I was quite uh, taken with this and uh, and surprised by it and I, I think that uh, I was a man of fairly limited talents <laughs> and the fact that somebody recognised that did, did trigger a whole, a whole thing, and I painted scenery for a local uh, local rep, an old variety theatre, big old theatre that was failing. Um, there was a good amateur uh, theatre professional direction in in Norwich, my hometown, called the Manor Market, and I was uh, an ASM there and painted uh, scenery. Didn't there was a resident designer that I worked with, so theatre was my. Awakening, really, and my way in. And the I went to art school to did a fine art course, and um, the uh, the way forward was to do a postgrad at the R C A, and they had a film design course, film and television design course, which I signed up for, and I d- did it because it was just sort of expedient. It was uh, used my theatre experience as a kind of qualification for that. So I didn't make a beeline for cinema. Um, once in it I thought well, this is rather fun <laughs> and I get paid for it so
0: <laughs> and you, you said you came more from a theatre background but were there any specific cinematic influences over you when you were young and as you began to develop your career in film were there sort of either people or films that you looked at and thought yeah that's that's pretty good
1: people especially and designers especially uh, the um, the, the, the chap who really became my mentor was John Barry. John Barry died tragically at 43 years old uh, of meningitis. And he he designed the first Star Wars, the very first Star Wars. Uh, he designed Superman 1, uh, A Clockwork Orange he designed for Kubrick. And uh, I think the, the, I can't remember, there's a Stanley Donan film in there too. Um, he, he was a remarkable designer. He designed with great wit, and he, he had this little sort of maxim, byword, um, which was that you, a good set, had only one idea, and at the very most two. But if you did more, you diluted it and dissipated it so much it wasn't worth doing. And I, that stuck with me. Resonated with me. And, uh, and
0: as your career has developed, have you? I remember seeing Selma Screammaker, the um, editor, talking and, and, and saying that, like Martin Scorsese, she will go back and watch a whole group of films before, seeing, uh, before working on a new project for inspiration. Have you ever done that, or do you feel that you get, your inspiration is the script and you work from there?
1: Yes, mostly. I, uh, I, I think many more people than I within the art department acknowledge John Bryan, who was David Lean's designer. Uh, for Oliver Twist and Great Expectations and they're very expressionistic, uh, expressionist films and uh, they have great power in the, uh, I mean they look of course they look dated and uh, but they have a great strength and uh, something to impart I think and uh, I certainly look there as I say as do many other designers but...
0: Uh, and. Let's talk about collaborations first of all with the director. Obviously you're someone who, for whom the bulk of work happens in advance for film starting creating these worlds um, and then overseeing their construction. Do you have a, a sort of a preferred method of working in terms of preparation and, and working with the director in advance?
1: I like to... I, I hate to go to a meeting without having read the script. I'd like to... have. <laughs> Have a drop on it, really. I um, I like always in, in in the work and in in the, in the process that we adopt, like to have something to offer um, rather than just start with the, with a brief with an instruction. Like to take something to the very first meeting and like s- subsequently always to to any meeting to take something in with me rather than just listen. Um y- different directors have obviously vastly different styles and 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 one has to adapt and learn how to address a director you know what his preferred process is and so on so so, uh, I've worked with quite a range of people Uh, David Lynch was fascinating David Lynch had a rather I suppose abstract approach to it all, to the process really, in that um, he would be concentrate most intently on peripheral things like sounds. The sound design was hugely important to him and Alan Splett was a sound designer that worked with him extensively. And He would address these peripheral things seemingly more than he would address the actors or more than he would, it would demand more of his attention than the actor's performance almost. And I guess you can see that in all, in all the David Lynch films, but uh, I think rather surprisingly in The, in the Elephant Man.
0: Let's, let, let's actually stay with The Elephant Man a moment, because to come back to what you were saying about having one idea, two at most, and I don't know if any of you have watched the film recently, but we have an opening, or very early stages of the film, we have this amazing circus, sequence. But following on from that, and it taps into this idea of creating an atmosphere and the the sound design, Um, you have shots of side streets and um, guys working uh, very industriously. Um, And it it struck me watching that film that it's very dank and dark and you've created a very perfect whole world of this kind of specific view of Victorian England that is still very Lynchian. how much freedom did he give you in terms of the creation of this world? Because it is recognizably Victorian, but at the same time, it still has this very different slant. Yeah.
1: Not, not much, I <laughs> suppose, is yeah, the answer. He was, you know, he, he was art school trained. He was incredibly interested in, in the visual aspect of, of, of the movie. Um, and we, we learned it was terrific. It was very rewarding. We we just conducted a tour together. We went to the London Hospital where the Elephant Man was incarcerated. Um, we the keeper. The, there's a museum there of, uh, which includes the Elephant Man's part of his skeleton um, and the the famous cap of the the, the mask. Um, and a, a man called Mr. Bunn who. Who guarded very seriously and very strictly the Elephant Man's reputation? I, I think I think the history of the exhibit in the museum there is is that it had been people came for the kind of shock value to see yeah. it, and he was very protective, rightly so, and thought thought this was disrespectful, really, and he was extremely suspicious of us. But David, in his, he's a very open, honest, straightforward chap from Montana, as well as this amazing f- uh, filmmaker. Um, and David quickly won the trust, really, of Mr. Bunn. And, um, and uh, he became a friend of the film, a friend of the project, and uh, on we went.
0: It seems fitting that you, you have a character with an almost Dickensian name, Mr. Bunn, yes, looking yes, after, yes, yes, after yes. that world. I've got a question from Bradley Morgan Johnson. Um, Do you have a particular team that you work with or does this change per project and perhaps first of all we could talk about your work with Richard Attenborough because it's run run the gamut from this sheer scale of films like Chaplin and Gandhi down to something more intimate like Shadowlands. Yes. So in terms of a team that you would work with, have you always had sort of a preferred structure?
1: there has been a team, um, Stephanie Mcmillan was the set decorator who worked with me most often and uh, she, she she died uh, about a year and a half two years ago. Um, an art director Neil Lamont, did all the Harry Potter films so you have strong relationships, professional relationships which you try to preserve, but um, we get out of step and uh, It happens all the time, so you're constantly meeting new people, but uh, uh, I'm working right now on Fantastic Beasts, a JK Rowling script uh, uh, project with largely a new team, but uh, I remember at the beginning saying, I must have some grey hair in this department, (laughs) apart from my own. (laughs) And and there are two people who are approaching my age, which uh, I'm grateful to have. It's just their knowledge, their experience, and then there's the fantastic team of young people who are absolutely terrific, you know, and the combination of the, the grey hair and the, and the young, it works magically. And, and with,
0: with this film, what, how many people have you got working in on In the
1: it? art department, probably 30. Right. It's a, it's a big movie and it's a big art department, very
0: big. And in terms of your day-to-day idea of the structure of that, you come up with an overall vision or you work with people on that how
1: does that then feed down through through the supervising art director it's it's very structured and uh uh, myself a supervising art director is takes my often rough pencil sketches i usually do uh, a a measured scale plan and section of a set in fact i sometimes go straight for that because uh, Having been an architectural film draftsman for 12 years before I started designing, I, you know, I, I, I can appreciate um, volume and space from a plan and a section. And uh, as I say, I prefer to get right immediately down to dimensions and nuts and bolts and so on. Um, so uh, yes, the supervising art director in this case, James Hambridge takes whatever I have to give to start it off. Uh, there are concept artists there who illustrate. There are art directors, draughtsmen who make white card models, which I think are an invaluable tool, actually. Um, we have digital models, sketch-up models, and so on. But the, the white card model that has been used in architectural practice forever and ever is, um, is I think, the, the best tool of all, really. It's something that you... You take in everything instantly rather than move through it, as you would in a digital model. And, uh, and and, sorry, it's so no, a no, no, meandering no, answer. No, no,
0: no, not at all, because it actually feeds into the, the next thing I'd ask. I'll come to locations in a short while, but mm-hmm. in terms of, of budget, um, obviously you, it, being in charge of a department, you have to actually come up with a budget of what's realistic. Um, is it easier these days? To budget? To budget than it has been, or is it more of a challenge? I, th-
1: I guess, uh, I guess it's the same really. I, d- I don't think that has changed substantially. You, you, well, we fancy that we are able most times to contribute to the making of the budget rather than just accepting the figure given. But in the end, you do just accept <laughs> the figure given. That's the reality. But um, the c- construction manager coordinator. Um, is involved the supervising art director is involved. They're the two principal um, makers of the uh, of the budget, uh, and then there's back and forth, of course, between producers, and production accountants, and and us. And uh, I, I think the the method, the system, has always been pretty much the same. How,
0: Considering looking at, the, at your work particularly in the last 15 years that you've been involved in films that have a very large use of visual effects, I'm, I'm curious about the discussions that you have, again in terms of budget but as well as the bigger picture of, of what would be actually built, what would be shot in camera and what would be created in post. That, that hasn't sort of proved a challenge in terms of budget and just your sort of day-to-day job?
1: B- Budget-wise, there is a... You start with a certain duplication. The art department budget to build everything and visual effects budget to also build everything. And, uh, and there's an enormous overlap. And part of the task of arriving at the budget is to discover where the overlaps are and, and to eliminate, you know, on one side or the other. I guess that's a new problem, right? yes, but because of the uh, of sheer volume of visual effects work and post production work
0: I've got a question from Natasha Ball, who may is in the audience. <laughs> Hello um, when making an iconic scene, uh, is your design governed by the budget you're allowed? I guess it's sort of discussing, or is it more about creating something that will awe people and that they will remember
1: I think For a scene, an image to become really iconic in a film, everything has to come together. Really, it has to be more than just a good design. It has to be, you know, a good design absolutely reinforcing the narrative. Has to be good performance. Has to be. So much as I'd like to think I can create an iconic design, it is only successful when all that comes together. I think.
0: Um, I'm just thinking about a film like Gandhi particularly um, and the film itself has become iconic Um, but working on that scale as a production designer and it's not just the scale of building something so enormous but having to work with tens of thousands of people. Um, How much of a challenge was that? And again your discussions with uh, Richard Attenborough about what he envisaged for that film.
1: Well, it's a minor miracle that the film was made, really. It had a long 20-year history of he, he trying to get it going. Um, it was very difficult to work in India at that time and on that scale. And, you know, Robert, the, there are the, well, the famous funeral sequence took an immense amount of organizing the cooperation of the army, the marching troops, and so on. The closing of the Rajpath, it was just so complicated. The film inevitably is full of compromise, uh, and from a design point of view, the most compromised film I ever made. Nonetheless, I'm proud to have done it because it's a remarkable film, and uh, it's great strength, I think, was Attenborough's energy and political skill in getting it going. And also, uh, it's a damn fine screenplay. It's a very well-structured... Robert Bolt, some years before, had written a screenplay for it For um, and I think Jack Bryley's script that was made is actually better than Robert Bolt's Robert Bolt's script.
0: Um, I've got another question um, from Natasha here, and I guess we we can use some comparisons with your film. First of all, comparing Gandhi, which everything is created in camera, what you see in the film. Well, actually, actually not quite. There is ah, a okay. there
1: is a, a match shot in Gandhi. There's one match shot. Uh, when is that? And uh, it's during the funeral. And there was a celebration of Gandhi's birthday, I think, so a, a month or six weeks before we came to film the funeral. And so we went up on top of the India Gate. At the, the one end of the Rajpath is the Viceregal Palace, Luchin's yep. famous building. Then the Rajpath is like the Mall here, except it's two miles long and the India Gate is at the other end. We put a camera up on India Gate, looking down the Rajpath to the Viceroyal Palace, and filmed the crowd on Gandhi's birthday. Left the camera there for six weeks, locked down, and uh, backwound the film. Um, and then on the funeral that we staged with the, uh, the, the gun carriage, the, uh, the army marching behind, all the principal actors and so on, and the crowd that we'd invited or, or enticed by offering—I can't remember what the raffle prizes <laughs> were—but well, anyway, um, so our own crowd on the uh, on the day we staged funeral came and joined the crowd that we used before. If you see what it right, mean? Right. Yes. So, so there is a composite image there: two different shots on two different days. That was pretty ambitious. I was, I was going to say, back but back that's back back also then, something yeah. that
0: really harks back to the early. Effects in cinema. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, quite amazing. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, mental note do your research, Ian. Um, but <laughs> let, let's look at two other films. You, you were involved in Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan yes. um, from the 1980s, and you've been involved recently with um, David Yates' Tarzan, which yeah. should be in cinemas next year. Natasha asks about how much further do you think technology can progress in making effects look more authentic in films? The latter film, the more recent film, is one that is very effects heavy and you look back to Greystoke which was very much location. What was your experience on the new film like with the old film sort of in mind?
1: We uh, learned a lot I think from the experience of doing the first film. The first film is, I think is a good film, Greystoke, I think it's nearly a very good film. and there's there's a sort of romantic sweep to it, which came from Hugh Hudson. Um, uh, the real, we went to Cameroon, which was probably probably a mistake <laughs> because it rained. It never, never, never stopped raining. The jungle is desperately disappointing. It's, it, it doesn't produce good images. It's, con- especially when you're in it, it's very confused. Uh, the, the image you make is very confused. You don't see very far. Um, We we chose Cameroon because there's a volcano and a little sort of satellite volcano. Mount Cameroon itself and small Mount Cameroon are classic conical volcanoes with a ring of cloud around the top, or they were when we found them, when we discovered them. And that's why we went. Um, And when we were actually there and filming, the cloud came down. There was just a kind of white out of mist and rain, and we never saw Mount bloody Cameroon uh, at all. And uh, it was desperately disappointing. Move on, whatever it is, 30 years, and yep. uh, and uh, we um, made, we did go to Gabon to shoot background plates, but the, we built a jungle in at Leavesden, and, and made very sort of, rather, the you know, consciously designed frames and uh, lots of um, concept sketches, uh, you know, laying down, determining the, de- the designs, the looks where we did get great depth. Um, Gabon for the background plates is full of beautiful waterfalls and overviews of the, the, the forest looks amazing when, when you're above it and looking over it, it's stunning. When you're in it, it's disastrous as a film location, so lesson painfully learned there, but I think Tarzan has benefited enormously the new one.
0: I think I'd quite like to have been in one of the uh, pre-production meetings on the original Greystoke where someone says, yeah, we're going to film near a volcano and and there's kind of smoke coming out of a volcano, that that would have been immediately (laughs) hubris in film, don't do it, just in case. Um, I've got a question from Bradley Morgan Johnson, who is also here what are your thoughts on digital versus traditional design techniques in pre-production do you or your team use a mix of both traditional and digital mediums or do you design uh, do your design start in traditional sketches and go on to be developed digitally
1: yes we do use both um, It's partly uh, I, I suppose a consequence of my age and um, my lack of uh, ability keeping up with the digital tools really uh, and so I uh, as I explained earlier I often start with a pencil drawing plan an elevation a, a sketch and, and give it then to concept artists who uh, um, yeah who make wonderful beautiful renderings as you will have seen I'm sure um, the white card model again I as I say I regard as the, as the principal tool really for getting the information out there first to the draftsman and then to the director of the DOP. Uh, It's an invaluable thing. But it it is a healthy mix of old old techniques and new technology, really.
0: And I've got Natasha again. Um, This is, again, it's looking at technology and production design. When thinking about the audience, with the movement of technology, people are now turning to online streaming services and can watch films on phones, tablets, PCs, etc. Is this a barrier for when you're designing? Do you worry that audience members will not get the full experience of a movie or of only watching on a four-inch mobile phone screen? Or is that just something that's down to the audience however they want to
1: watch it? Yes, I worry about it. I mean, it is a a hopeless um, way to view movie um, I suppose it certainly makes you concentrate on broad strokes um, with, a, yeah, with a screen so yeah. tiny um, I think movie sets actually good, really good ones have physical ones have a sort of life and justify themselves um, just as works of art really I, I, I think they can be Beautiful. There can be pieces of sculpture, uh, internal sculpture, external sculpture. Um, The the painting techniques are beautiful. Light, light and shade, as in sculpture, is is incredibly important. Um, So, you know, there's a whole level of enjoyment there on on the physical set. Almost, in spite of the fact that a movie, or as well as the fact that a movie is um, is made from it. Um, so, the, yeah, the most impactful experience really is is to feel it, touch it, stand in the set. The second most is to watch the shadows on the screen, which is actually what it's all about, um, because it has been beautifully lit, beautifully rendered by the DOP. But then to, to go down from a major movie screen to a computer screen to a, a phone, um, is, you're coming a long, long way from the original, absolutely.
0: Let's stay with the idea of artistry. I want to come back to um, cinematography in a moment and your collaboration with directors of photography. But you talk about the idea of art- artistry and we had a previous guest here, Jani Tamim, who's worked on Harry Potter amongst many other things and she was speaking at one point about Dumbledore's costume and that she would actually have the same costume but designed in different ways and sometimes she would have an incredible amount of detail and she said obviously with new cinematographers coming on board for different films they would film in a different way, they would give it a different look. But ultimately what she desired and what she wanted is a sense of satisfaction in herself that even if the audiences didn't see something, yes, she knew it was there. Do you, do you feel this? You talk about artistry, do you have this sense that every detail has to be right for you, to the point where even if it's not picked up, it's, you know it's there?
1: Yes. Uh, yeah. You d- design for yourself anyway, don't you really? <laughs> I mean, everything is for yourself. Uh, I think you, you, you cannot um, You have to believe in it, you have to be fully committed to it, you have to do it, you have to be its judge and jury uh, on the finished result. Um, So I I absolutely see what Janny means and And, agree.
0: And in terms of working with cinematographers, um, and again because you worked on all the Potter films, you, you went from very, very, very different or through very different visual styles. from light at the beginning to getting increasingly darker. Um, Talk about your relationship with cinematographers and the palette they're looking for and the discussions that you generally have.
1: When the collaboration is is full and frank and open and frequent, it's terrific. It's It's one of the most exciting parts of the whole process, really, because together you can really do... Great, great things. You can do great magic. Um, not all cameramen are as communicative <laughs> as you, you might like. Um, I'm working right now on the new uh, uh, J.K. Rowling fantastic with uh, Philippe Ruslo uh, who did uh, Dangerous Liaison, or I, I did it with him, and uh, Mary Riley, a Stephen Frears movie we did together. And he's a great collaborator, really, really. There's a sort of simple humility in the way he addresses you and problems and so on. He's totally terrific. And the, the Harry Potter series, well, Roger Pratt was and is a good friend and was a great cameraman and uh, did Richard Attenborough films and uh, two of the Harry Potter films. Uh, you just look for a good dialogue and a good, uh, so again, it's
0: sort of his trust in a relationship. Yeah.
1: Also the designer, of course, positions the, the table lamp, the window. So in a sense, you set up the key ingredients of the lighting for him. So you, you better do it with his blessing and his, uh, his cooperation. But you do. You, you can make him miserable or you can make him happy. Let's go back uh, to... And he can make you <laughs> happy or unhappy.
0: Let's go back to the, the Elephant Man and working with Freddie Francis and working on a black and white film. Um, a while ago, Alan Starsky, the production designer on Schindler's List, was over here and he was showing some examples of the palette that he had to create in order to work on a black and white film. Yes. Um, and again, it's coming back to the idea that, that you have an enormous amount of smoke in that film and mist and, yes. and fogginess of that period of London, but it's also luminous. And I'm just curious about how you had to t- take a reality and make it black and white and, and make it fantastical, and how much of a challenge that was, and then working with Freddie Francis on yeah. creating that look.
1: Fr- Freddie was there as, uh, as the gray hair, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I and everybody else. David Lynch, Jonathan Sanger, producer, um, the uh, Terry Clegg, uh, executive producer at the time, myself. We were all in our thirties, in our mid thirties. And uh, Freddie was put there as a kind of safe, the safe pair of hands uh, that we would all be guided by and indeed were. Um, Freddie also had uh, fantastic uh, sons and lovers he did in black and white. Uh, I, I can't remember the other, other titles, but anyway, he very experienced in black and white. The Innocence. Um, the innocence. Jack Clayton. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, type yeah. film. Yeah. yeah. Um, from the art department point of view, we painted everything, all the sets, rather monochromatically, not entirely without colour, but but a very sort of grey, greyed out version of, uh, just, just to be certain of the values and so on. Um, but it was. It's largely in the lighting, really. The, it's not, you don't paint the shadows, Freddie creates them, and, uh, and uh, high contrast black and white is, is very exciting. And uh, it, it was shot in black and white. It wasn't shot as a color film converted. It was, there was a, one laboratory, Humphreys, um, actually using taking black and white negative at that time. And it's much punchier and con- more contrasty than color film um, printed as black and white.
0: I've got a question from John West. Um, actually, I'll, I'll do Neil Bradley's first because this is about challenges. Having worked on all eight of the Harry Potter films, what were the main challenges that you faced when designing, as he calls it, the franchise, not, not just the look of one film, but the whole world?
1: Well, in the beginning, I think the American producers were the main challenge. <laughs> <laughs> um, one, of, uh, I was taken at one point to Frith Street in Soho and said, look, why do you need to build Diagon Alley? Look at frith Street? <laughs> well it was it was really sort of dispiriting. I have to say I was kind of rather fed up at that point of the the lack of understanding, but uh, the the main challenge on the on that movie uh, and, and any movie really is to, is to find to find the film, to find out what it should be, and so on, and uh, it's a film about boy and girl wizards in in this sort of fantasy place, Hogwarts, which is invisible to Muggle world. And it would have been very easy and possible to make it a rather whimsical affair, the design of the film. And by embarking on this journey, looking at real locations, considering how we might make it it, it was not whim, whimsical at all. I think, really, I think it's quite sort of gritty and everywhere is quite real and uh, very deliberately so. Uh, the solidity the, of the whole thing is very evident, and uh, the magic grows out of this very se- seemingly very real place. Uh, and I think the magic is stronger because of, uh, because it does emanate from this very, you know, yeah, very credible. And-
0: and you've got so many sets uh, that you revisit, locations that you revisit throughout um, the, the Harry Potter films, but they, they take on a different look at like Diagon Alley, you mentioned, um, depending on what episode of, of the Harry Potter series you're watching. What were the discussions like about how the, again, comes down to this palette, how the palette would change? Um, did you physically have to make many changes or was this something just down to the lighting, cinematography?
1: make changes for the D.O.P. Yes, the,
0: uh, in terms of changing the set at any point yeah. as, as the films got darker.
1: Yes, we, we did, as the films got darker, the sets got darker, quite literally got darker. We, we did actually repaint Hogwarts to be grimmer. In, in, in the beginning, in the, in, the first, in the Chris Columbus films, they're the films for very young people, aren't they? For 10, 11, 12-year-olds yeah. and so on. Uh, and the, the issues are uh, uh, ones that concern very, very young kids and uh, it's only later we dealt with death and loss and loss of loved ones and so on and that's when the sets were literally repainted um, in, the, in the beginning there because of locations used in Gloucester, Gloucester Cathedral, Oxford Colleges, Christ Church College, Oxford um, it's all that very beautiful Cotswold honey coloured stone. Um, and that was the look of the early movies. And as I say, it got, we painted it darker and dirtier.
0: And of all the sets that you created for Harry Potter, do you have one specific one that when you go back and look at the films, you think, yeah,
1: <laughs> that's pretty cool? Well, I liked, uh, I did like quite a. I mean, all you see in your own movies when you look at them are the mistakes, actually, <laughs> the things that didn't work. But I did enjoy uh, some, some, a few different ones. I, I, I think the, the Gryffindor common room, I think the Gryffindor dormitory, I think the dark arts classroom, and I think Dumbledore's office, they were all the homes of the principal characters, and they reflected the nature and personalities of those characters, I think successfully. And uh, I suppose the one that gives me m- perhaps the most pleasure is Dumbledore's office. It, there was a sort of conceit about it in, um, in the exterior. You notice the big conical uh, building to the right of the Great Hall has three little turrets on it each one cantilevered off the bigger one in front of it, if you see what I mean, so it's yeah. a great big roof, and then these three little turrets cantilevered one off of the other, almost defying gravity, but not quite, just about possible. Um, and the, the three little circles became, in Dumbledore's office, yeah, three, three room-sized circles. And sculpturally, they were quite nice, and the levels were quite nice, and yeah, I, I think that's okay, I did okay there. <laughs>
0: and uh, looking across the whole of your career, it, with the idea of uh, perhaps working on something where there were in, seemingly insurmountable odds, it, it's, is there a, a piece of your design across any film that you look and you think, that, that considering what we had to do, that's that's pretty good?
1: I don't know, as I say, it's the bad ones, you know, the bad bits <laughs> you notice and the are painful. I guess part of the reason I wanted to ask that
0: is just in terms of you think if any of you have seen um, Richard Attenborough's Cry Freedom and the opening is this astonishing sequence. It's almost documentary style of um, uh, one of the shantytowns uh, um, outside of Johannesburg being ripped down and I guess it feeds into the idea of the, the level of research that you do because outside of the fantasy world when you see films that are set in the actual present day there's a sense that of, it's quite surprising to me that you create these worlds. Yes. It's not just something yes. that you find and then you tear yeah.
1: down or... No, that, that, was, that was pretty successful, that, that particular thing. Patricia, my wife and I, were sent by Richard to uh, South Africa um, to research, and uh, we went and posed as tourists and uh, um, met Donald Card, who was um, the, the friend that uh, aided the escape um, we were interested in hippo those big armored police vehicles that, which have the extraordinary sort of v-shaped under underside to deflect bombs and so on so we Patricia would stand in front of post boxes and near policemen and postmen and so that I could take a photograph seemingly innocently <laughs> in a sort of touristy fashion and we were there what a couple of weeks maybe less and uh accumulated this key reference. And one of the places we went to the fringes of was was Crossroads, which is that that shanty squatter town that is demolished at the beginning of the film. Um, And that was a frightening and invaluable experience um, to white people with no no kind of innocent reason for being there really. It was, you felt quite vulnerable, quite threatened. And in apartheid era of South Africa. In the, exactly. Richard Attenborough, some months before, had been to meet Winnie Mandela and had also, with a, a, um, an adverse press, had been sort of handed out really and, and, and left rather hurriedly. Um, so so it, it was a very difficult project to get that first-hand research. Um, and we then subsequently in Zimbabwe made the film in Zimbabwe, built that squatter camp um, over several acres. It was a big, big construction. And uh, as and a rule, when you're researching,
0: well. do you, do you always want if it, if it's set in a specific place, do you always want to go and sort of research as much as you can within that location, beyond the sort of researching through books, internet?
1: Yes, yes, yeah. There's always a process at the beginning of. Uh, Re- researching and it, it, every location you look for visit uh, teaches you something even if it's what not to do you you just you find your way into the film you, you what it should be and uh, that yeah Again,
0: this, this kind of taps into the research and the, the idea of verisimilitude and, and creating a believable world. Um, one of the former BAFTA crew guests, the hair and makeup designer, Christine Blundell, has remarked that the development in technologies in recent years has meant that cameras now pick up more detail than they ever had before. Has that been a challenge for you?
1: Well, I think it's especially, especially true of hair and makeup because it has to withstand huge close-ups and. Uh, in a way that a film set, a film location, possibly doesn't. But certain specific props do. And uh, props are, have become a, prop manufacture, especially on the Harry Potter films, uh, have become a very significant and demanding part of our work and our process, really. So it is true, but especially of you know detailed props, specific props.
0: And I've got a question from John West, which takes us more back into the virtual world. Which computer programs would you recommend for aspiring
1: designers? I had notice of this question, so, <laughs> I can, so if I may. Yeah. Certainly. Because you have a dinosaur in your miss. I need to, um, I, can't, no, 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 no. I can't find it. What I, what used to be the case is um, that Maya was the commonly used, uh, most sophisticated program for building 3D models and so on. Maya, yeah. That's been largely replaced by uh, a, a program, uh, uh, a, a technology, uh, uh, sorry, a program called Modo which is uh, for building three-dimensional sets. Photoshop, I think, now is predominantly for 2D. Um, and as I say, um, for 3D is Modo. Um, I think visual effects companies still use Maya, um, but the concept artists uh, use Modo. And, uh, you're probably more familiar with these things than I am actually, funnily enough, but uh, um, ZBrush, ZBrush is also for freeform, is a fantastic tool and there's, there's something else which I was looking for here, which is if you build something in, in ZBrush, you, there's uh, something that allows you to have a, highly, a final render which is highly polished. Sorry, I stumbled over that because I couldn't find the, re- That's okay. the reference, um, but uh, I think I've been part of... Of all the... Yeah,
0: yes, I so was just uh, wondering, over the course of the Harry Potter series, for example, if you noticed more introduction of 3D printing for prototyping for props and assets on the set. So you... yes. the increase of 3D printing for prototyping on the yeah. Harry Potter films as they progressed?
1: Yes, we, we it did progress and we did use it more and more. And... Uh, Right now, are involved with some 3D printing and the CNC cutting. Um, all of it, uh, it's um, the, the you know to, to make it affordable. You go for less detail, and having gone for less detail, you you get your ob- object, sculpture, whatever it is, back, and you have to sharpen it up. You have to put. So we do that. We find this kind of middle middle road compromise position where we don't spend too much money on, on the machining but to sharp, get the sculptor to sharpen it up and very successfully it's, it's, it's working well
0: and again we're, we're working with not necessarily new technologies but developing technologies 3d and also i don't know if you've made any films specifically for imax the challenges in those for you as a designer or is it just another thing and it's not so difficult to (laughs) deal with?
1: Well, three uh, IMAX I haven't. Uh, I know a bit about it. I know somebody who's done a lot of work with it, Um, Peter Parks, uh, who's done Bugs Life, I think it was called, and so on. Yes, uh, the Pixar film. Yeah. Peter Parks' son, Chris Parks, uh, is currently, did the 3D conversion on Gravity, on the movie Gravity. So I'm interested, and I've heard about three d it isn't doesn't place extra demands in that it's a regular movie converted mostly very few films are shot in three d these days I think but they are converted to three d um, i think it, it's, it, as i say it's not more demanding on detail necessarily I think it's changing i think as I understand i think it was you know. Used to shock and uh, to thrill, um, but in a fairly um, a le- less than serious way. I think what is much more interesting is to make a film of talking heads. Uh, a, a, I think of old Sven Nyckvis, Ingmar Bergman's uh, cameraman, who said, uh, Two heads in a teacup, that's my game. Two <laughs> heads in a teacup. And it would be great to make a Nick Viss type film with two heads and a teacup in, in IMAX or, or shoot it in 3D. I guess that, in a way, that that's the most interesting. I
0: think. When, when 3D was in its early stages uh, in the 1950s and was seen as a gimmick, that, that, that's, in a way, what Hitchcock tried to do with Dalem for murder yes of, of take 3D into a domestic situation yes yes, yes everyone knowing that knife that kept coming out <laughs> towards the audience was going to be used at some point yeah, in time yeah in terms of Harry Potter it, it, it didn't have any impact then as you progressed with the films into 3D there wasn't any we
1: demand did, on you to create we something we didn't that, make any concession we forgot about it really and and, uh, and it was done afterwards and I think uh, right now on Fantastic Beasts Chris Parks, uh, um, having done, uh, doing Tarzan and having uh, done um, the sorry the That's right. the film I just mentioned uh, from Sandra Bullock in space oh uh, Gravity Gravity having just done that um, is hired already to as a consultant on Fantastic Beasts so it is being considered now it is
0: so staying with. The idea of technology, but let's look at the bonuses, the, the, the good things. It. In your career, which has moved from working with film, 35mm film, moving into digital, um, what do you think has helped the most, you specifically, in your role?
1: I think uh, it's a cameraman question, is there really? <laughs> I, I think y- you can deal with much lower exp- exposure in video video cameras uh, than movie cameras. Uh, digital video uh, has yeah f- far more flexibility and low light situations. Uh, so I, I I think the essential difference is there. Design wise, other than that, uh, and which becomes apparent in your collaboration with the DOP. I don't think there are any adjustments that made, really, I don't think so.
0: And and not just looking at um, visual effects and and sort of more visual um, technology, but generally uh, across the board of the last 30 or 40 years, what challenges do you feel are still there now for for anyone who's sort of entering the industry as a production designer? Sorry,
1: the, the introduction again.
0: Uh, challenges with your experience over the last couple of decades, what challenges do you feel are still in place right. for production designers, for anyone who's coming into the industry now that they should be aware of? I, I think
1: the relationship with the visual effects department, I, th- I think there's a, there's currently an ongoing lack of resolution there, that, and it needs to be resolved. Um, and it is... It is couple of things it it is that the designer needs to retain control of the look and design of the film and the reality is at the end the designer finishes at the end of principal photography and the whole post-production process carries on without him and your design is radically affected of course Um, the only way I've found of on Harry Potter it wasn't a problem because I was there on the next film as the post-production was happening on the previous film and collaboration continued collaboration was easy but uh, it's not always possible Um, it's uh, not a bad idea to volunteer your consultancy services for free nobody seems to mind that if you go into (laughs) (laughs) um Uh, would you would you but but that the two departments need to integrate they need to become one eventually it is um, There's the sort of Competitive than an us element to relationships. I'm working with Tim Burke, uh, Christian Mance from Framestore and the re- it, the relationships are absolutely fine. It, it, you know, they're mutual respect for what each department has to do. But, but uh, I think underlying there there is this uh, you know, there's a lack of resolution. Who's responsible for what and uh, and the design should carry right through with the same impetus, you know, from... Yeah, it just needs, yep. we all need to be in the... Just to have every, have the two departments on the same floor in the same office block would help. And have you worked
0: on any films where Previs has helped you a great deal, or is that just something yeah. that, again, exists in parallel?
1: No, no, it helps a great deal. It, uh, it's, it's used almost... It's used for major action scenes and, yeah, you, you you wouldn't use it for two people uh, at a table, um, but ex- you've been used extensively now on Fantastic Beasts, yes, and was on Harry Potter, um, and it, is, it inf- informs everybody and uh, anticipates ev- every every issue, every problem. So it's a terrific tool. Absolutely. But again, this comes to
0: back to something about working closely with the victim. The visual effects department—that yeah. they shouldn't yeah. be separate. That you—you yeah. you are working in tandem on with yeah. the same aim in mind. Yeah,
1: yeah. There are there are different concept artists. There, are, uh, there are guys who work directly for the art department, and the art department hand on the concept work to the visual effects department, uh, and in the hope that they, you know, recognise it and carry it out and in good faith and retain this the spirit of it but uh, Framestore Double Negative are now establishing art departments um, and offering a complete service from design to completed shop Um, and you you know for them obviously it's a very satisfying and attractive and rewarding process but uh, again it it shows a division in an area where there shouldn't be any really. you can't have two art departments, Yeah. one in the studio next to the shooting process and the other one a vendor outside doing different things. It's a, there's beyond, a problem there.
0: Beyond that, I've got a question from Samantha Redwood. Looking back at your career, is there any one piece of advice that you would give your younger self? And if you have that, what, what would it be?
1: Maybe more than one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, the the world is, the real world and location shooting, particularly, which is the real world, mm-hmm. is full of potential compromise and you have to fight like hell not to compromise. You know, you go, the only expedient way to make some films is to go on location, shoot principally on location. locations are full of, uh, um, extraneous detail that you don't want, that don't tell your story. Everything must tell the story, and you must get rid of everything extraneous. And on location shooting, you must spend most of your time and effort taking things out, stripping things away, and reducing it to the one thing that took you there in the first place. Um, That's one. What would be another? Stand up for what you believe in. Producers and accountants want to hear good news, and uh, but it's your job to defend the idea and give them, yeah, give them as handsome and strong a movie as you possibly can. And you, you're each fighting your corner. It's their job to fight you and, uh, you know, keep the cost in check. It's your job to fight back and gain as much as you can to deliver. It's a tussle and yep. you, you, yeah, stand up and fight.
0: It's again is another question from Samantha. I guess it follows on from that. Is there a struggle over any one design where you, if you had the opportunity to go back and say, oh, I'd, I'd like to do that again? Oh,
1: there's lots of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were lots and lots on Gandhi as we, we've already touched on just because it, it was so ambitious and so on, but. Uh, I mean, even in Doubledoe's office, which I, you know, said I liked very much, there's behind his desk and his throne-like chair, you see uh, the room underneath a balcony and the room above, but the the face of the balcony, the fascia, is a great, horrible, leaden lump of nothing, and it's right across the centre of the image. and. Uh, it's upsetting, <laughs> to me, anyway. <laughs>
0: and do you find the, the passage of time, you, you were saying that when you look at a film or you think about a, a certain sequence or a design, you always find the faults in it. Do you find the passage of time makes it much easier? No. <laughs> 20 <laughs> years... It no, takes some time 30, to think about that. <laughs> 30 years
1: later, God damn it, the bloody thing's still there. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: I think we are, unfortunately, now out of time, so can you please join me in thanking Stuart Craig? Thank you.